0: Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Teage FM network. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And follow us at our new Twitter account. We're at CVL Soundboard. Later in the show, Nathan Moore and Peter Golaska discuss a few of the new faces we'll see in the General Assembly come January. Plus, we talk to one of the outreach co-chairs for Dreamers on Grounds about the challenges that local undocumented people and people with DACA status face here in Charlottesville. But first, we dig deep into Billy Jean-Louis' recent article on Albemarle County's new high school center. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Billy Jean-Louis and editor Elliot Robinson. Two weeks ago we talked about your article that looked into the specific needs of Latinx students at Albemarle High School and you gave us a little teaser about the article we're going to talk about this week. It came out on Friday and it's called Equity in Mind as Albemarle Moves Away from Traditional High Schools. So in this article, you write about how Albemarle has opened one new high school center and has plans to open a few more, as well as the fact that at Center One, there are currently no Latinx students.
1: Thanks for having me. It's good to be back.
0: Can you remind us what Albemarle's Center One is?
1: Center One is a specialty high school. It's Albemarle County Public Schools' fourth academy. So this year, the center admits seniors. They work on capstone projects, and next year it will admit sophomores and juniors, programs for the sophomores and juniors or cybersecurity, game design, and media communications. The rooms at Center One are different from a traditional high school. Instead of desks, the facility boasts a number of studios, including a video and audio production room and an art and multipurpose room.
0: How is it different from K Tech, the Charlottesville Albemarle Technical Education Center?
1: So the main difference, last year, students were not awarded an industry certificate, and Tech has an internship program, for instance, for uh, automotive students.
0: Should we also talk about how it's different from MESA?
1: So MESA, essentially, it's a math, engineering, and science academy also Navarro County program and then this one essentially it's not about math science i would say more creative
0: and there's no set curriculum students can kind of decide what they want to work on whereas Mesa and K-Tech both have a set of classes or competencies that you have to work yes, on right? Yes, yeah why did the county decide to build this first center
1: Center One was developed to elevate capacity issues at Albamo and Western Albamo High Schools The division chose to have Center One instead of building a new high school because school officials have told me it's cheaper.
0: What do the students who attend this center do all day?
1: So what they do, they alternate days. One day they're at their based high school, and the next day they spend it at the center working on projects.
0: Could you give a couple examples of the kinds of projects that students at Center One have worked on?
1: Of course. One of the students I talked to who's now in college, she wrote a children's book. So she spent her entire time there writing and editing. And then I believe she will publish the book during the winter break. So this is one of the projects that a student there has worked on. Pretty impressive, I would say.
0: And who are the students who attend Center One? How are they recruited?
1: Last year and this year, these students are seniors. Like I mentioned, the division will expand to sophomores and juniors. This upcoming academic year, in terms of like equipment, the division said it relied on counselors to spread the word about the center, but they're shifting away from that. School officials have told me that they plan to send information directly to all parents so that, you know, no one is left out.
0: What challenges did they face in their first couple of years?
1: So in doing this story this year, out of 42 students there, nearly 80 percent of the students identify as white, and the remainder, there is no Latino student there. So that's one of the challenges that they are is just reach out to all students. But in talking to them, they've laid out plans to rectify that problem and bring in not just Latino students, but all students, so that the population at the center can mirror the population of the whole student body in the county schools.
0: So, you already mentioned changing their approach from relying on guidance counselors to tell students about it to directly notifying all parents. What other plans do administrators have to attract more Latinx students and other currently underrepresented students?
1: Right. So, they plan to visit freshman seminar classes, send direct messages to parents, provide translation services for Spanish speakers at open houses. They also plan to send a video that showcases the programs at the center. One of the recommendations I've gotten from a student was the fact that right now they don't currently have someone who speaks Spanish at the center. So the student told me maybe they could have someone who speaks Spanish there to help anyone whose first language is not English and who speaks Spanish so that they could help facilitate the projects there. And in talking to the school officials, they told me this is one option that they're looking into. Additionally, school officials also plan to attend X meetings. At this point, I don't know if they have done that, but when I did talk to them, they said that they had scheduled to attend the X club meetings. We
0: talk a lot about Charlottesville High School's gifted program known as Quest. Like in these centers, in the Quest program, white students have been overrepresented while students of color were underrepresented. Do you see any important parallels between the Quest program in the city and these new centers in the county?
1: So I would say so. Specialty programs, honors, AP and gifted programs usually have racial disparities. So for CINAH1 and other specialty programs, the division argues it might be a economic factor. So those who have parents in the engineering field are more likely to start taking math classes early. And those who are not from an affluent family are more likely to not have the knowledge about the classes that they should take. But it's also the division job to tell those who are not familiar with these courses like MESA. Students need to take certain math courses in the seventh grade and eighth grade to position themselves to succeed in the academy. So if you're not from an affluent family, you're less likely to know about what to do.
2: And I think with the Quest program, with the specialty centers, it's not racist in itself. It's just a bit of the unintentional legacy of it is that some of these programs were formed right after the end of segregated schools, and they were set up to be a way to separate white students away from the rest of the student population. And for the most part, that isn't what anyone's intention is at the moment, but just those policies and the way that they were written years ago kind of led to it continuing to segregate these students.
1: So I want to go back to what Elliot said for the gifted program. We learned from a research from a UVA grad over the summer that programs like quests historically were created to segregate. Uh, That story I wrote over the summer is also on our website, and I encourage people to read it and realize when we do stories like examining the early stage of the center is because we know that history. So moving forward, how do we make sure that all these students received quality education and that no one is left behind?
0: Are there any important differences between Albemarle County's new centers and programs like Quest or MESA that are gifted programs that students apply into?
1: I wouldn't say that these centers are new gifted programs. I wouldn't say that. There are no requirements to get to them. But the reason why it's important to do stories like this and examining the centers is because we do know that when we do programs like this, there is a certain group of people who are going to know about it. For instance, for this story, in talking to some Latinx students, they told me the program is not well advertised in the school. So if you're not taking these courses, you just don't know what's going on, although you might be interested in going to the center.
0: Just because a program isn't exclusive and that it doesn't have an application doesn't mean that the benefits of it aren't being distributed Mm -hmm. in an an equal way.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly.
0: Will the centers provide any benefits or resources to students who struggle with traditional classroom
2: learning?
1: This is interesting, Mary, and, you know, I look forward to looking into that. I'm positive that this, is, this could be a story itself.
2: It is a, a good change. There are students who don't learn very well in a traditional classroom setting that if they can visualize what this geometry question is on the test by building something or creating something, they would understand it a lot more. It will be interesting to see like how this project-based learning will help those students who it isn't like in their best interest to learn just by sitting in a desk for six hours.
0: Do parents, school board members, board of supervisors members, people in the community generally, do they think these centers are a long-term solution for Albemarle County's growing student population?
2: I think in the long run, there still will be a a need to build another high school to fill this capacity issue because at, at the moment, like these high school centers, they go there every other day of the week. So their school, if it's at capacity or over capacity, will fall down to the size it should be only half of the time.
0: Thanks so much for all the reporting that clearly went into this article. It was really interesting to read.
2: Well, I had fun
1: doing the story. This is something new to the community. And I feel like as journalists, it is imperative that when there is a new program that we educate the public so that everybody is aware and when I say everybody, I'm talking about parents so that they're aware of the opportunities that exist for their children.
2: And it's very commendable for our county public schools to try something different and then also to look back and realize, wait a minute, is this program isn't as diverse as we'd hoped it would be. What can we do to make this uh, a high school center program more equitable? One of my biggest takeaways from this story was that when we were doing our research that Billy discovered that it wasn't a complete blind spot to them. is something that they acknowledge and something that they had said that they want to fix.
0: Well, let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week?
2: Next week, we'll have some special guests at Charlottesville tomorrow. We will have a few journalists from Ukraine who will be shadowing us because they would like to learn about how journalism works in the United States. Their newsroom is about the same size as ours. So, it is a good match, So, but also along with meeting with us, they'll take a trip to uh, the Daily Progress. They'll also go on a tour with CBS 19, and they'll visit some cultural events, and hopefully this is the beginning of a longer relationship between us and their newsroom. This is a program that's been going on, funded in part by the State Department for a few decades, so we're very happy that they'll be coming here and excited to see what we'll learn from them and what they'll learn from us.
0: Will they be here next Thursday? Bring them. We'll put them on tape. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, It's Always a pleasure being here.
0: Billy Jean-Louis is a reporter covering education for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teach FM Network. WTJU and TJFM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on the show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. Up next, we talk about how Charlottesville residents can be allies and advocates for undocumented people in our community. Do you want to start out by introducing yourself?
3: My name is Lorena. I am a third-year student at the University of Virginia and I am one of the outreach co-chairs with a student organization named Dreamers on Grounds. We focus on empowering the undocumented and documented community and advocating for the rights of undocumented and documented students at the university. And my job is to interact with the community and making sure that we are doing our due diligence to the communities outside of UVA and informing them about our mission and also supporting undocumented and documented people outside of the university.
0: So a lot of people are probably aware of the conditions that migrants face at the border and national immigration policy, but what local and statewide policies affect immigrants and undocumented people in and around Charlottesville?
3: First of all, people are just being withheld of their rights everywhere. Uh, So that is also happening in Charlottesville and also in the community. People of color are especially being targeted One example, uh, in Charlottesville specifically, is that in the spring of 2019, the regional jail board voted to keep voluntarily notifying ICE to pick up undocumented immigrants who are released from jail from a minor infraction, such as speeding or overdue inspection. Local authorities don't have a duty to report directly to ICE. They input the information of the people that they arrest into a shared system. So if ICE wanted to, they could check every single day but the police does not have to literally call ICE and notify them that they're releasing someone. People are literally being detained by ICE as they exit the Yale
0: because the police department is calling ICE. What is the city and county's relationship with immigration and customs enforcement, often known as ICE? I think that the the
3: biggest thing to kind of focus on is that we cannot have a safe community without the local authorities cooperating with the community to support immigrants the end of a local authority should be for people to feel safe in the community and to be able to seek support if something happens. Mm -hmm. But often the case is that A, there's a huge mistrust uh, for the police for historically oppressive movements against people of color, but also now because of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement efforts to remove immigrants from communities. So what usually happens is that if there is an incident, people are just afraid to report it and they're not communicating with the authorities. Imagine just living in a place where you literally cannot call the police if anything happens.
0: What local and statewide policies particularly affect DACA students?
3: Specifically in UVA, students who are undocumented are not allowed to matriculate into the university. And that policy specifically is not at all well advertised within the university's website. So it might very well be that a student applies to the university, gets into the university and accepts but when they are actually trying to matriculate, then they are told you cannot matriculate because you don't have DACA status. DACA students are allowed to matriculate in the university. Undocumented students are not. There are several other universities across the state that allow students who are undocumented to matriculate and have support from the institution. So in the past, the University of Virginia did not award any kind of financial aid to DACA students. This has changed. Recently, the university started to offer institutional aid to students, which is amazing. And that is something that we're really, really proud to have worked with the university and kind of led the efforts in that. But at the same time, there's a long way to go.
0: How can Charlottesville residents be allies and advocates for immigration rights? So one of the first things
3: is to alert the Charlottesville, Virginia area immigration rapid response hotline. Their number is 855 298 three two, seven one if you see any ice vehicles or any ice activity in the area. So that's one of the things. The other thing is vote for people who have an agenda to uplift and support the rights of immigrants, specifically undocumented immigrants. That's really, really important at the local and state level government. The second thing is go to jail board meetings and oppose policies such as voluntary notifications of ice by the Albemarle County Regional Jair Board. If people show up and the board knows that the community is against these policies, then they hopefully would do something to change it. But it's really important that we show up. We also need to make sure that people are aware of the know your rights information. Undocumented individuals have rights in this country and it's really important that we let them know that they have those rights and also show community members how to support those communities in case that anything happens. And lastly, it's really important that people use their privilege to support these communities. It is commonly said that in order to support a movement, people have to show up and go to the streets and do all of these big demonstrations. But at the same time, a lot of people who have DACA or are undocumented are simply afraid to do so because anything that they do that is supposedly wrong can literally cause them to be deported. So people who have... Citizenship, people who are not in fear of being deported from the country, need to take it up to themselves to stand up for people who do not have papers and who are really fighting every day to make the life of their families better. And I think that at the end of the day, that is the American dream, right? That you're able to come to this country and make a better life for yourself and for your family. We are not doing that right now. We are denying people of their rights. And I think that it's really, really important for people such as ourselves, who are citizens, to stand up for the rights of undocumented uh, immigrants and documented immigrants, and be able to allow these people to be part of our community, because they are. uh, They support our economy. They are an integral part of this country. They always have been, uh, and we need to make sure that we're supporting them.
0: Where do you see people and organizations in Charlottesville working for immigration rights and supporting undocumented residents?
3: There are a lot of organizations in Charlottesville that are doing amazing work uh, in supporting immigrants. Uh, the first one is the Legal Aid Justice Center. They do a lot of pro bono work to support immigrants in our community. Sin Barreras is also a group that is doing really good job just to kind of list uh, organizations. Creciendo Juntos, the Virginia Organizing, the ICE Out of Seville, Charlottesville Immigrant Freedom Fund, Dreamers on Grounds, obviously, uh, but also two other organizations in UVA are Plumas and Cafe. They also do a lot of community empowerment event and advocacy events that are really shaping the UVA community in a really amazing
0: way. How can people support the work of those organizations? Well, the first thing is go
3: to their events, <laughs> ask questions when you go to the events, and If you have the resources, donate to their cause. Mm -hmm. A lot of these organizations are doing pro bono work, volunteer work, and they need the resources. And also do intentional acts of support. Something as easy as forwarding their event on social media or just showing words of support and encouragement can go a really long way. And get involved if you want to. It's really awesome to see community members and UVA students getting involved in these efforts and showing support for the
0: community. Where can people find resources and learn more information about this issue?
3: Well, with the internet, literally like anywhere. <laughs> it's really Google easy. it. <laughs> it's really easy to do a Google search for a lot of these resources, but I think that something really important is trusting people of color. Uh, there's just basic stereotypes in the community of distrust, um, and I think that it's really important for us to bridge that gap and really just come together and trust each other. The next thing is to come to Undocua, like trainings we offer them as an organization, and they're essentially just an educational session where we teach you how to be an ally to people with undocumented, undocumented status. And I think that as a way to just inform yourself and enrich your knowledge of the community, going to Ally trainings is really, really important. They can also be requested. If people just reach to Dreamers on Grounds directly, we can absolutely arrange an Ally training.
0: Is there anything else you want to
3: add? I also just want to finish by emphasizing the fact that it is our responsibility as a community to support undocumented, and documented people. And I don't think that until we come together as a community to really support these individuals that we are going to make any progress.
0: Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming.
3: <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM network. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond.
4: Well, as we do each week here on Soundboard, we turn to state news and politics to understand more about what's going on. This week, we're speaking, as we always do, with our friend and journalist, Peter Galaska. He's based over in the Richmond area and writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. Peter, Good morning. Good morning. So uh, we uh, have a new incoming class of lawmakers Mm -hmm. at the General Assembly this year. Uh, A whole bunch of new folks were elected. Uh, Take me through more of the the diversity of that General Assembly. Who got elected?
5: Yeah, well, it's really interesting. As you know, the Democrats squeaked by. Uh, They took the Senate 2119 and House of Delegates 54 to 43. And so they're in control of the legislature now. Uh, Not by a big margin, but, you know, it's a big, significant change. And one of the most interesting things, I think, about the election, I think we we may have discussed a a bit before, is just how diverse this group is. I mean, there's some prominent women to be in positions of power, and you have people who are really from other countries uh, have come in, and a couple are are pretty strong examples. So this is just further evidence of the progressive blueing of Virginia and and a bit of an anti-Trump feeling, too,
4: that's uh, spilling over. Yeah, you and I talked about that quite a bit during the election season, how Trump was almost the invisible top of ticket on the Republican side that drove a lot of Democratic turnout. Take me through some of the the women that have gotten elected and now chosen for House leadership positions. Well, I
5: think the biggest House leader would be um, Eileen Filler-Korn, who's now the Speaker of the House. And, you know, she's from Northern Virginia, and she's the first uh, woman and the first Jewish woman to really achieve such a high position in the state government, state legislature, rather. And um, there are a few other people who have come in that are really interesting. One is in the Senate from the Chesterfield-Richmond areas, is Ghazala Hashmi, who is going to be in the Senate. She's the first Muslim woman, one of the first Indian-Americans to be in the uh, legislature. And the other one is uh, Suhas Subramanian. He's an Indian-American Hindu from northern Virginia. And they're just two examples of you know, what, where the state might, might be going as more people move in here from either other states or other countries. And they're they're going to bring a different perspective to things.
4: Yeah. Well, and you and I have talked about this too, but, but just looking at the demographics of Virginia, it is a state with a remarkably high immigrant population, You know, foreign-born or, or children of foreign-born populations. Yes,
5: it's true. I mean, Northern Virginia obviously is the big leader there. I mean, it just has been friendly to people. And they are growing populations in, in, in the Richmond area. And, of course, Hampton Roads has always had some. Charlottesville as well. And they're scattering out. I mean, there are more people moving actually to some rural areas too. For example, if you have a rural area where you have a doctor shortage, there's a good chance that you might find a foreign-born certified doctor to move there. One one of the things I wanted to bring up in the Hasmi um, situation was uh, she's um, you know was brought to the United States, gosh, years ago uh, by her parents, and she's like was like a child. Moved to Richmond in '91, and she's been in higher education since, uh, works as an official at a local community college in the Richmond area. But according to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, one of the reasons that that moved her to get into politics was that she was really miffed that when Trump, uh, when he took office, one of his first moves was to issue a travel ban to people from seven Muslim, basically, countries, and that annoyed her. And so I think that's another reason why people are coming back and uh, you know, saying, okay, I'm in politics now. So that's just one example.
4: Yeah, yeah. We know a little bit now about who some of the new lawmakers are. Let's talk a little bit about what uh, are they going to do? What issues are they going to focus on in this new session?
5: Well, I think the Washington Post says, and I think the Post is correct, that they're going to be looking at social issues. I had spoke recently with Steve Farnsworth, who's a political scientist at the at University of Mary Washington, and he told me that one of the things you can expect with a democratically-led legislature is there's a better chance for the Equal Rights Amendment to pass. And there are a number of other things as well, such as possibly more gun control. Of course, that begs the issue of the now 40 localities that are either thinking of or have adopted Second Amendment sanctuary status, which is kind of a weird term. But anyway, and some of the issues that haven't been that probably won't be uh, addressed would be raising the minimum wage that might might wait till the 2021 gubernatorial race, because Ralph Northam, our Democratic governor, uh, wants to keep it, while others like Tom Priero, who ran against him, you know, are for it, uh, for repealing it. And so it's just that's another kind of split that's coming. It depends on who wins the governor's race to see where that goes. But it's going to be a largely social issue and things that don't really cost a whole lot of money, no big spending programs. Because, I mean, I think that, as Farnsworth says, the Democrats don't want to seem like they're from California, you know, and which is it's kind of an unfair image, but that's what people do think. And he wants to keep things, you know, they want to keep things sort of within reason so they have a better chance of getting reelected.
4: Right so sort of steady hand at the wheel but mostly things that are um kind of red meat for the social the, the more liberal social base Yeah right Let's switch over in our last few minutes here. Talk about Dominion, which is almost a weekly topic yeah, because they have they have the power, uh, so to speak. Let's talk about Dominion's plans. So Dominion uh, makes a bunch of energy, and a lot of the, that energy comes from coal plants, coal-fired power plants. Um, coal-fired power plants produce a bunch of nasty coal ash, and they have to dispose of it somehow. Um, they have some plans. They want to revise how they dispose of it, and that's going to cost more money. and What's going to happen?
5: Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting because – Basically, during the Obama administration, the EPA was going to push new regs to tighten up on coal ash disposal on site at plants, at coal plants. And the problem is, is that Dominion jumped right in and wanted to do things on their terms. And so they, they were just going to dewater the sort of ponds where they have the coal ash stored right next to the power plants. Most of these are on uh, rivers or in a floodplain. And dewater it, clean the water, and then just put a tarp over it, essentially. Well, that provoked a huge outcry all the way from Richmond to northern Virginia, where they have Possum Point, Bramo Bluffs, on the, you know, not too far from Charlottesville is another example, and, of course, down in Tidewater. So there's a big outcry, and the General Assembly completely, it was a bipartisan move, which is interesting. They, they are forcing Dominion to change its plan. So now Dominion's come up with a new plan, and they're going to recycle some of the coal ash, which other states have done for a long time and have uh, off, uh, on-site landfilling and, and off-site landfilling. And the problem is this, this is going to cost probably the ratepayers between 2.4 and $5.7 billion. And, and apparently there's a way for Dominion to get profits out of this. So it's going be, to be interesting to see what happens with their plan.
4: Well, I mean, each year they go to the assembly and basically say, "All right, here's how much uh, profit we're going to make this year." That's cool, right? Well, they actually
5: well they go to the assembly, but they have to go to the state corporation commission. They're the ones who actually they make the presentations too. But
4: oh, right, that's a executive, not legislative.
5: Yeah, you know, but it's just interesting to see what's going to happen because I mean, Dominion is really back down and is trying to tune up its image after taking a lot of, getting a lot of heat for coal ash and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and some other things. And so they seem to be coming around, but the legislature made it happen, which is really interesting in this uh, non-bipartisan world. this, You know, we had prominent Republicans like Amanda Chase really leading the way partly for this, and it worked.
4: Okay. All right, Peter. Well, thanks for taking the time again. All right. All right. Thanks, Dave. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion.
0: Well, that does it for this week's edition of soundboard your source for news culture and community issues in central virginia my name's mary garner mcgee our theme song is chioga beat by myrna lasco and jay pun this is soundboard catch us at wtju.net or podcast home at teej.fm